But I find if you play fantasy football, that helps a lot when it comes to having conversations with men yes. in England. Because if you don't know anything about football, you're in big trouble. Yeah, I don't talk to men. Right. For yourself. Yeah. So I don't know. I'm lost on football. Hopeless. Yeah. Well, good. You can survive. You can survive. Can you? Yeah. And not die alone. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> well, then, no, yeah. I haven't got to that point. Yeah. Good. That's, That's a nice way to start the podcast. <laughs> podcast that follows me in my own quest to get a novel published with interviews and advice from some of the Northwest's leading writers, authors, novelists, even poets. Uh, Well, I say poets. I haven't spoken to a poet on this thing for quite some time. Maybe I should get one on. I'm coming to you today, as usual, from my home office in Ermston after spending a sunny summer day in Charlton. Charlton is another sort of burb in South Manchester, and one I cycle through every day on my way to work. It's a, it's, it's an incredibly weird place. What is the best way to describe Charlton? I sup, I don't know, I suppose the best way is to talk about the people who live there. And I'm not going to dwell on this. If you live in Manchester, you already know where this is going. The, last week I saw a woman on a fixie bike doing the school run with a kid on the front and a kid on the back. And I think that pretty much sums up Charlton perfectly. I also saw a woman saying, Henderson, if you don't finish your dinner, I'll be critically upset to her pet rabbit. That is not a lie. I didn't even make that up. That's actually, that actually did happen. Charlton is a really strange place. You know, uh, it's home to some celebrities. It's home to... Just weird people. You might see a badly drawn boy at the unicorn when picking up a half pound of dairy-free cheese. I never have, but I've heard he's there quite a lot. I the also the elbow guys. I think they live in Trollton. A couple of them do. I know one of them does because I've actually had beers with one of them. Kind of a big deal, me. Sure, it was the bassist, but I think that still counts. It's not like it was a drummer. Anyway, you know, South Manchester, so glamorous. Today, I talked to lecturer, novelist, and now short story writer, Gregory Normanton, about his latest collection of aforementioned short stories entitled The Ghost Who Bled, which is coming out, I say coming out, it's out on Comma Press. It's a number of stories that he's written over the past decade I think. Was it 10 years or 20 years? It's been a while since I've listened to the interview, obviously. But I, I, a long time. And it's it's actually quite good. We also talk about the novel that's coming out later this year from the Fourth Estate. And it's really worth listening to the podcast all the way through. I mean, it's always worth listening to the podcast all the way through, obviously. But in this case, it's really worth it because we talk about his novel at the end of this interview. And it's bonkers. Uh, in a in a good way. Should I tell you a bit about it? No, just listen to it because it's it's worth it. What else do we talk about? I hear you say. Well, I don't know if you follow him on Twitter, but if you do, you will know that he's political. He I think he went to he went to a, a posh school. I think so. He knows loads of interesting things. And just to give you a flavor of what we talked about, um, these are some of the things that have come up that come up in this interview. Uh, John Prescott, Boris Johnson. Saddam Hussein, Seinfeld, 
Will Self, Doctor Who, Henry James, Shakespeare, Peter Davidson. I wrote that down. I don't even remember who he is or what we talked about with him. That must be some sort of Doctor Who thing. Anyway, Jim Hinks, <laughs> the amazing Jim Hinks. He's been on the podcast. Hilary Mantel. We talk about mortality. We talk about immortality. We talk about the Alberta Tar Sands, patriotism, populist demagogues, social liberalism, Star Trek, uh, Game of Thrones, Simpsons. I, honestly, we run the gamut. We do talk probably a bit too much about Doctor Who. I, I, maybe I should have cut this conversation off a bit quicker. But the problem is, I despise Doctor Who, and he actually quite likes it. So, you know, because he's British, and that's what you people, you, you people like that sort of business. Uh, he did try to convince me, and he, I'm, you know, I wouldn't say he did a great job of it, because I still just don't buy it. But um, if you like Doctor Who, a lot of what he says will ring true. As you will discover very quickly, uh, if that list of things I've just said hasn't already convinced you, but once he's talking, he's quite a bright dude, which, I mean, it, in one way, it's great, because he says interesting things, but... Also difficult when, you know, half the things he says, I don't know what he's talking about. I just have to kind of nod and smile and then Google afterwards. He says words like suspiriosis and panglossian. Did it sound like I just read those? Yeah, because I had to write them down. And we talked quite a, li- a lot about linguistic diversity loss, which, believe me, is more interesting than it sounds. And it's, a, well, I mean, it's exactly what it sounds like. It's the problem of dumbing down the language. And he was nice enough not to blame it on us North Americans when clearly it is our fault. Um, mostly Americans who've dumbed it down, but he's got a, a very, he's got a, he's got a massive vocabulary, does Greg. And uh, he's not afraid to use it, which is quite interesting and fun, really. And um, it, I learned a lot, <laughs> put it that way. <laughs> He also does a lovely thing by saying at one point, you know, uh, things that like this matter to people of stories like us, you know, us meaning me and him as if I'm some sort of contemporary, which is a really lovely thing. I This has happened a number of times on the podcast, and every time it does, I just think, yes, this doing this podcast is amazing, even though it's it's totally not true. He did actually sound genuine uh, about it, and like he actually meant that we are some sort of contemporaries, which is, is great. And he's read some of my stuff. So, you know, maybe uh, what I'm writing is okay. Who knows? We'll find out when I get my bloody mark back from the university. More on that in a bit. I think Greg Gurry, oh, and I've done, I do that all the time. I don't think I did it in the interview called him Greg, but uh, shortening names to British people I don't know. I've had I've had people get really pissed off if I got that wrong, which makes me want to do it even more. So I think Greg is the I think he's the poshest person to be on the podcast. I think he says that himself. I think he does he refer to himself as posh. I don't know. Is posh? I don't even I can't even remember if posh is a slight. Would people get offended by being called that? I don't know, but I think he is. I mean, it certainly makes for a lovely change from the you know assembly line of scrubbers that have come through this podcast. I mean, a couple of interviews where I had to hose the recorder down. Jokes. I uh, <laughs> I never know how far to go on this thing with those sorts of jokes. I love you people, all that have been on the podcast. 
please don't leave me and please keep coming on. I do these sorts of jokes and when I do them in my head, I think that was really hilarious. And then I basically spend the rest of the week torturing myself over them. They know I'm kidding. I'm sure they do. Anyway, quick subject change. Here's an update on my own publishing journey. Publishing update. I'm still waiting for my marks from the university, from my, for my novel. They are going to be back in, well, what is it now? Middle of June. Like it's going to be, I'm going to get them back by the end of June. So really haven't got a lot to tell you. You know, what a great idea, Rob, changing the podcast format to include my own publishing journey when there's nothing to report. Come on, university. Mark my blood. Mark the bloody thing already. I actually did toy with the idea of holding Gregory's podcast episode hostage until I received my mark. But, you know, unlike university lecturers, I'm nice. That's not, see, yeah, that's also a joke. They're nice. I have had to spend money on my graduation gown. I think I've talked about this already, so I'm not going to spend much time on it. And all kinds of other stuff on tickets and things. Did I have to pay for the tickets? I had to, anyway, money. I paid money for graduation, and I'm not sure if I'm actually if I've actually passed yet. So I'm I'm assuming it. Everything will be fine, right? <laughs> Publishing update. My uh, brand manager is telling me not to be too political on this podcast. But I mean, it's just crazy. How can you not? I live in Manchester in 2017. The world has gone crazy. <laughs> I, did, I did just say brand manager, didn't I? I know how middle class is that. It's a literary podcast. I'm, it's already middle class as it gets. Of course, I've got a brand manager. We actually talk about the trouble of writing a book in the present because it, it the present is in such a state of constant flux. But the danger exists in doing podcasts as well because I interviewed Gregory a month ago and I think we were both, we had a, a good old moan about how crap the state of affairs are in this country with the Tories running everything. But a month later, it's been completely turned on its head. The Tories are in trouble and Jeremy Corbyn somehow has come good. The little scamp. I really need to listen to Pundits Less and Joe Bell more. But anyway, keep that in mind when you listen to this interview. I wasn't sure if I was going to talk about the bomb at all, and I probably shouldn't. But it's, oh God, what do you even say about it? It's just crazy. I will just say the one one little tiny thing. I think that Ariana Grande's heart is in the right place. But I was just thinking, you know, if I was a parent and one of my kids was lost in that attack, seeing Pharrell bouncing around on stage a week later singing, I'm happy. I don't know. Is that is that okay? Why is... I'm not sure why that was okay. Right. I'm not going to talk about that anymore. This interview was recorded in the cavernous Jeffrey Manton lobby, the building for the Manchester Metropolitan University building. So you're going to hear some echoing because the room is massive. And you're also going to hear a really annoying student who decided to sit next to us and talk on her mobile about halfway through this interview. Hopefully it's not too annoying. If, you know, you see someone doing an interview with headphones on and a microphone, 
maybe choose another place to sit? Just a thought. Anyway, there is a fuck ton of politics being talked about in this interview. And, um, you know, deal with it. This is Gregory now. Listen. First of all, how did it come about? It's been a long time coming. Yeah. And why short stories? Uh, okay, so try and answer that. Those questions. They're, they're pretty in some big kind ones. of order. Mm. Um, the book. Some collections of short stories are written with a view to being a collection, mm-hmm. like a, a concept album equivalent for short stories. Yeah. This really is just the book of the least bad stories that I've written in the last 17 years. The, first, the oldest of these goes back to 2000. Okay. Uh, so, it, in one sense, it doesn't have um, it doesn't have a sort of co- a, a coherent, narrow set of themes that mm-hmm. echo through the stories, except that because they're written by me over the course of these years, they'll echo my own preoccupations. So I'm very drawn to uh, the past. I'm very drawn to travel. I'm very drawn uh, to certainly travel in, in in the imagination and and in fiction mm-hmm. um, and. You know, there are certain ethical uh, and even spiritual preoccupations that inevitably will reoccur. Um, and some of the stories are very removed from me, but even the ones that are removed from me, as is always the case with writing, I borrowed bits from my own experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in that sense, yes, it's, it's just a kind of collect- it's a collection of, uh, of the stories I'm, I'm most proud of over the last 17, 18 years. Mm-hmm. Um, wow. And uh, Comma Press, I got to know them when I moved here to Manchester. I got to know Jim Hinks, who was then uh, sort of number two at uh, Comma uh, and he he's edited, been on the podcast he's, he's on the you know mm. you know Jim delightful guy and a very good uh, and irritating editor mm-hmm. uh, very thorough so he edited these stories um, uh, as I was sort of still writing I was writing a few um, and then you know a, a really good editor should probably tell a short story collector that they need to remove a few and maybe write a couple of new ones so I wrote a couple of new ones mm-hmm. and there are a couple of here that were actually commissioned by Comma for other books for anthologies that they've done right. uh, so yeah, it's an omnium gatherum. Yeah. Oh, very good. Yes, I looked uh, that one up. Yeah. <laughs> what? Uh, give me an example of one of the stories that is removed from you, basically something that you're you kind of gone out of the. I don't want to say out of your box. Yeah. But something that um, doesn't relate to you directly. Yeah. Basically. Well, lots of them don't relate. Well, to obviously, directly. you don't know Christopher Marlowe first. No, no. He and I just just missed each other. Yeah. Uh, well, so confessions of a tyrant's double. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is a story that I wrote very obviously inspired by Saddam Hussein's doubles. And I know that there have been a few films. I mean, it's, it's a very in- interesting project. But I'm very drawn to um, gothic premises and trying to make them apply them in a totally naturalistic context. So the, the doppelganger, the double, mm-hmm. is a very well-established trope in horror and gothic. And I, and I just thought, well, here's a literal example of it. So I did a lot of reading. This was before the Second Gulf War. And I was wondering, well, if I was Saddam Hussein, how would I get out of this? Because mm-hmm. it's clear that the Estates is going to push this all the way. And I thought, well, the obvious thing to do is to engineer my, my death. Uh, so that kind of conceit. He should, he, Saddam Hussein didn't ask me for mm-hmm. So look what happened to him. That's right. Well, maybe, uh, he, maybe his death wasn't real. Maybe he did it. <laughs> maybe he, maybe, he, maybe, well, uh, maybe yeah. he killed his double. <laughs> maybe he's living in Milwaukee now. Yeah. <laughs> I bet he's not enjoying yeah. him and nothing Hitler. wrong with Milwaukee. Him and Hitler. Yeah. Hitler's widow. Um, anyway, so Confessions of a Tyrant's Double... Uh, uh, I, um, I, I did a lot of reading about Iraq, uh, a lot of reading about Saddam Hussein, which is a very queasy experience. Um, a little Say bit like least. reading about Stalin. You, yeah, you mm. felt, I felt quite sickened after reading this. I read Fisk's 
huge book about the endless wars in the Middle East. So as is often the case, it starts from an initial concern. Uh, you know, uh, perhaps younger listeners maybe have forgotten even 40, only 14 years ago. You know, the, the looming war in the Gulf was was, the, was a huge, a huge story, and that's, mm-hmm. and and, uh, both and in many ways, both of them, but but the second particularly was was a, uh, marked a kind of. Uh, an awakening to activism for a lot of people not not quite for me I think I'd done a bit beforehand but um, anyway so I was preoccupied as a citizen with this thing and as preoccupied as a human being with the suffering that was going on there before the war and, and obviously after mm-hmm. well there uh, seemed to be a, a, a reason in the first one yeah like for, if they, they invaded Kuwait mm-hmm. but uh, the second one just seemed to be you know he shot at my dad so I'm gonna go back and get him yeah well I think and also this this sort of post-imperial delusion that we have in this country too that uh, just because we're the good guys we can remake the world in, our, in, a, in a more positive image I think I think there was with the neocons I mean I didn't go into this because I was focusing on the story mm-hmm. of the my, main character but with the neocons who wanted the war I think there was a, a slightly Panglossian sense that American power could lead to positive outcome I don't think it was in, in a paradoxical way and you saw people like Christopher Hitchens making common cause with the Bushites um, it it, it wasn't quite as sort of brazenly narcissistic as the as the present administration is in its fumblings. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a kind of idealism there, but it was oh, it was horribly delusional. Mm-hmm. I think we all we all see that now. Anyway, so that was the anxiety. But I did a lot of research, a lot of reading around it, and ultimately, I, I thought with the case of all stories, um, it's just a question of if you can imagine it, and you can imagine it to the way that so convincingly, so that other readers it also persuades them mm-hmm. then 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 in a sense you can experience it to some degree I, so I'm very very cautious about and I know I teach creative writing so in, in this, a lot of American creative writing campuses classically you know a lot of middle class kids are told to write about what they know so they write really boring stories about being angsty growing mm-hmm. up in you know wherever it might be um, <laughs> and I, I just really think that 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 could be a, a useful rule of thumb if you're one of those writers who writes from from the core of the self your own experience but if you're not I think that's a very limiting uh, uh, axiom, and so I'm, I try to write away from it. Mm-hmm. Panglossian. Yeah. Wow. There is. A, I have to say, when I was reading these short stories, I did have to go to Google a few times. Mm. Um, you're very verbose. Is oh that God, the word? I? I hope not. Not verbose, but uh, <laughs> that's not the right word. Uh, you have a very <laughs> large vocabulary, and you're yeah. happy to use it. Yes. I will. Uh, I do have quite a good vocabulary. In fact, one of my favourite words is uh, sesquipedalian. <laughs> Which means long-winded, which I think is one. There's an inherent comedy in, in, in whoever coined that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I was always drawn to. Well, so uh, my mother was my mother was French. So I grew up with with two languages, and I think that may have played a part. I'm not I'm not a linguist at all. I'm very bad at other languages. I did Spanish at school and, mm-hmm. and, and struggled to do more than order an omelet. But um, I, I guess the two languages made me at least very interested in. Um, What's that line in the Alan Bennett play? Oh, who are you asking Fascinating, here? Fascinating, very interesting. He's always talking about very interested in words. Yes. It sounds very Welsh. <laughs> um, I, don't, I don't love words per se, but mm-hmm. I, you know, I suppose I do, actually. Yeah. Um, but uh, you've got someone like Will Self, who I think does it in a slightly ostentatious way. I think so, too. Um, but I would think that, because I have to learn the dictionary with him. Yes, okay. Um, but others may seem to feel that way with me. But really, mm-hmm. if you've got a word which is the more juste, you should use mm-hmm. it. Otherwise, we're looking, you know, we, we worry rightly about cultural, ecolo- about ecological uh, diversity loss. We should worry about linguistic diversity loss. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Robert McFarlane's recent book, Landscapes, mm-hmm. which is all about um, the very specific words to denote uh, ecological phenomena, which would allow people living in the natural world, as we all do, but aren't mm-hmm. aware of it, but, you know, 
closer to it than we do now, mm-hmm. to, to orientate themselves safely. Um, the same is true of, of having a, you know, a, 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 a broad enough vocabulary that it can help us orientate ourselves. And yeah, so, uh, I mean, I, 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 I'm much more drawn to plainness and simplicity now than I was when I was 25. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and I wrote my first book, which really is uh, overwordy. Mm-hmm. Um, but even so, uh, yeah, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not too nervous of that. If I were a politician, I'd have to dial it back down yep. to sound... Too well know, to appeal to the masses, basically. Do you think? Well, I wouldn't use such a term. That's loaded, yeah. but yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, you know, you use different vocabulary. I mean, I guess the other thing is, I suppose, at the risk of sounding really poncy, mm-hmm. so the writers, the writers that I'm really drawn to are the stylists, uh, by which I mean there's people who recognise that for each individual story you have to find a different voice, a different perspective. Yep. And that means you have to be able to ventriloquise a little bit. You need mm-hmm. to be able to write outside of your own voice. Now, there, yep. th- th- there are limitations in all of that. Um, I-, I would feel it would be an impertinence to try and write from the point of view of, I don't know, a Jamaican guy living in London, because mm-hmm. that's an experience far removed from mine, because it's a, it's a, it's a, it's, it's a form of English that I'm not familiar with. Um, so e- even then, most stylists... Limited to some degree, but yeah, this preoccupation of trying to make sure that form, style, and content match perfectly mm-hmm. means that you can be uh, one of the dangers for stylists. Of course, I'm thinking of someone like Andrew Miller, who, mm-hmm. who's you know, pretty well known, but not as celebrated as I think he deserves to be. And one of the reasons is that each one of Andrew Miller's novels is very different in in style and form and in language because he's he's tailored it to the material. Mm-hmm. But as a result, you don't really feel ah, oh, this is an Andrew Miller product in the way that you do with writers who've, who've got a particular voice right. and replicate it all the time. Mm-hmm. So there, there isn't necessarily a definitive sound that you get from that writer. Like, you, you know, all Coldplay songs basically sound the same. You usually mm-hmm. know that you're with yep. Coldplay. One of the reasons they're successful is that they do that. One of the reasons they're not very interesting is that they do that. Yep. So I'm quite drawn to writers who are themselves ventriloquists, and I suppose in my own way I'm drawn to that too. And mm-hmm. so an interest in, in vocabulary and uh, specificities and, uh, you know, uh, making things absolutely particular to the to the subject matter, it mm-hmm. seems to me very important. Well, that might be, might explain why the stories in this are so different from each other. There's, and like you say, there isn't. If there is one kind of even remote theme, I tried to reach for one. Yeah. Um, I thought more t- like man's mortality really kind of. Yeah. There's quite a few stories, um, not just about death, but about people, like, you know, um, well worrying about dying. And uh, yes. So I think that is that some is that even close to a theme in this. How can it not be a theme? It's one of in the primary theme. themes of literature. I mm. mean, you know, love and sex yep. and death. Yeah. Um, obviously, I can't write too much about sex because uh, my dad might still read the books. So yeah. uh, <laughs> that leads me to leads me death. Right. Um, uh, well, yes, I suppose a preoccupation with... Well, the end you know, of the we, world for a start. Yeah. Well, that certainly is true. So mm-hmm. uh, um, that's something that's increasingly in all of my writing. As someone very anxious, as you know, so we mm-hmm. tweet about these things ad nauseum, but... Um, you know, we are living already now in the sixth great extinction wave. Uh, at the very least, we're the beginning of the great, the great silencing. Uh, and at worst, you know, I don't think we're going to wipe ourselves out, but we're certainly in danger of making civilization as we know it impossible. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I have a three-year-old daughter, and I worry a great deal about what the world's going to be like for her when she's 13, let alone when she's... 83, 93, if as I hope she lives a good long life. And mm-hmm. so, uh, yeah, uh, my preoccupations as a citizen and as an earthling cannot 
failed to manifest themselves in the book. And of course, the, the challenge then is, if you write a polemical piece about global warming, uh, it doesn't tend to make for very interesting literature. It's yeah. like polemic. And there mm-hmm. are a few people who've been able to make polemic compelling from a literary point of view, but most of them don't. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the question is, you, you've got to tell the truth, or tell your preoccupation <laughs> at least, and tell it slant, as, as, as yep. the famous uh, but it's hard poet to, says. Yep. But, uh, and, and, and so um, uh, one of the stories in the book, uh, The Hermit of Athos, uh, is set um, in the Middle Ages. Uh, and it's set uh, at the time that the, that the, the Ottoman Empire is spreading uh, and the Byzantine Empire is shrinking and shrinking and shrinking and is facing that's, that's its own... really relevant its own to today, isn't oh, it? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Mm. Uh, uh, and, um, uh, and so there's this monk on, on Mount Athos, which is this peninsula in northern Greece where, uh, still to this day, uh, only men uh, are allowed, only priests. Uh, so it's an it's a, it's a orthodox, uh, Greek Orthodox... Uh, uh, enclave, uh, and this um, this monk who wishes only to be, you know, one of God's athletes and ascetic life uh, to save his own soul is 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 perceived to have miraculous properties. So he's dragged over mm-hmm. to uh, the emperor's palace and required to tell what future holds. Mm-hmm. And he sees beyond the mere minor matter of the end of the Eastern Roman Empire and sort of glimpses the horrors to come in our own age and mm-hmm. beyond us. So, you know, in a story which is, a, in one way, a historical fantasy, I have managed to weave in my own anxieties mm-hmm. about, you know... Uh, well, it could, it could literally be the spread of the Ottoman Empire. Yeah, um, oh, sure, sure. But, you know, the thing is that I guess, uh, so all empires and all civilizations, you know, they're all culturally specific and their specificities matter, but ultimately... Mm-hmm. They're all subject to the same laws of mutability, and so yeah. I, I, on the one hand, that's the preoccupation. But it's also beyond that. The preoccupation yeah. also there is is the whole idea of vision, whether having vision is, it would be a positive for us or a negative. Um, and I guess quite a lot of the characters. So where, where I suppose the poor monk in the Hermit of Athos has something in common with uh, um, Thomas Kidd in the story about Christopher Marlowe. He has something in common, of course, with the uh, tyrant's double, is that these are all men who basically want to live quiet, honourable lives, and uh, whom temporal power will not allow to live this quiet yeah. life. So, yeah, that's also a preoccupation, mm-hmm. I suppose. So, and, and I was very touched when Maggie G gave me a little puff piece for the back of the book, but she says that the, uh, the stories have moral and political bite. Now, moral bite, I, I was very happy about. Political mm. bite really surprised me, mm. because with the exception of the American story in here, uh, which was more just about a particular moment. I happened to find myself in, in Midwestern... In Refugium? In Refugium, yeah. Refugium. I, found my, I found myself on a Midwestern campus in, uh, in 2003, and it was a wonderful experience. But, you know, it was a very uh, difficult moment for, for, for liberals and moderates in America, as it, as it is now. But in, way, in some ways more so, I suppose, because how, 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 um, how cowed people who were doubtful about uh, George W. Bush's adventures were uh, felt um, at a time when, you know... America is still shaking from 9-11. With the exception of that story, uh, uh, none of the stories seem to me in any way overtly political. Uh, Except, I suppose, Mm. as I've just given an example of, actually, to some degree, that the basic shapes and injustices of politics don't change over the centuries. Yeah. I, uh, you know, I wrote it down. I had what I called Gregory Normanton bingo. 
in the in the stories. Basically, you could tell like it, <laughs> that you you're like, oh, there's Greg. <laughs> oh, really? That's interesting. Very yeah. interesting. Yeah, because I thought well, I mean, obviously the obvious ones like global warming yeah. is is huge in yeah. this. Um, oh, I, if I got them written down here, ah, oh, it doesn't matter. I'll I'm very excited to the idea of Norman Bingo. Yeah, I, it's the same thing. Have you ever seen uh, Haruki Murakami Bingo? No, I haven't, but I'm honoured to be in the same sentence as yeah. that. Well, it's basically every time someone cooks a pot of noodles. Right. Um, <laughs> oh, I can't even remember. There's loads of them anyway. Um, but yeah, like, oh yeah, you've got Kissinger. I think he makes an appearance at some yeah. point. Um, uh, yeah, I think Not not America, I thought was quite a good concept in the yeah. refugium story. Yeah, well, the experience of the experience of being a European in the States, I mean, it's it's a very well-worn trope for 100, 100 more than 100 years ago, you know, people like, uh, well, obviously Henry James writing about innocent Americans debauched by um, debauched by old Europe. Mm-hmm. And and to some degree, there's, it's, there's an element of, not I wouldn't say debauched for the States, but there's something of a reversal of that now, if you mm-hmm. find yourself on an American campus. Yeah. Um, as a European... But of course, the, I mean, over puritanized almost. Like I don't understand how they can be, like they still hold themselves up as kind of the moral yeah. leaders of the world because of, it, that's how America started. It was like Puritans leaving and yeah. creating their own religion because the ones in Europe weren't yes. weren't allowing them to be. Uh, <laughs> what's the word? Not strong enough, but uh, harsh enough, basically. Mm. Well, people didn't feel they had that. I mean, America is an, an, an infinitely fascinating place. Yeah. The only way one can write about it, and this is true of all the stories that are set abroad, so I, I ended up writing them from the point of view of visitors, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, not every single one of them, but, but, but a lot of them. So Writer's Retreat uh, is reversed a little bit. The, the central character, Pavel, is a, is a Russian-speaking poet, but he lives in a fictional Central Asian state, and he finds himself in, in Edinburgh. But in Refugium, you've got, you've got a Brit who's, who's in, the, in the Midwest, uh, in, in Zero Plus Thirty, you've got an American who's married to a Cambodian woman who survived the killing fields. And so I, saw, I tried to write that story for a long time mm-hmm. from the point of view of Vang, the, 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 the woman who survives. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't do it. I couldn't mm-hmm. put myself in her head. It, again, it felt, I don't like the term, but it felt, in this case, I think it is appropriate. It felt like cultural appropriation. It felt mm-hmm. like, a, like an impertinence. And then I realized that actually the story that I could tell probably was from the point of view of the survivor's partner. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm, I've always been, I've never been able to shake off the impression that Arch Spiegelman's mouse made on me when I was a teenager. Mm. Because it's not just about the trauma of those who survived Auschwitz, but it's about the trauma of being a child of a survivor of Auschwitz. Mm-hmm. And so my uh, uncle's partner, Sian, uh, survived the killing fields. So to some degree inspired by her story, she escaped by uh, dragging herself and some friends through through the jungle to the border in Thailand. Sheesh. Um, and... Um, to some degree, I was—I suppose—I was trying to honour Sian's uh, experience, but I was also aware that the, of the great difficulties of trying to do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, especially when you, it's that close, personally. Yeah, really. and of course, it's also the danger that, as a writer, if you want—if you want um, to—if uh, you want your writing to have the dark glamour of of the, the darkest episodes of the 20th century, and there's a lot to choose from. Um, there's a danger of it being a shorthand. Mm-hmm. Oh well, I'm writing about yep. killing fields. Therefore, this is deep. Yep. I'm writing about World War Two. Therefore, this is deep. And it's actually very, very risky to do that. I mean, again, this is a well-worn idea, but the, in, in the face of unspeakable horror, is silence the only appropriate response? Mm. Um, I, 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 I think I don't. I can't quite bring myself to accept that. Mm. I think these stories need to be keep re- retold. But you know, you need to tell them again from an yep. angle that you can 
you can identify with. Did you say it was your aunt that was in? Yeah, my aunt, my aunt by marriage. Did she? Is she still around? Yeah. Has she read it? Yeah. I, uh, well, I, I, uh, I've talked to her about the story. Uh, there is, it hasn't been translated into French, and my, I should probably do it at some point. Mm-hmm. Um, I've always been a bit cagey about talking to Sian about it. Um, again, perhaps part of me hasn't quite resolved a sense a sense of appropriation there. Um, but she didn't mind my writing uh, uh, the story. I think she doesn't talk about it a great deal. Mm. Um, and you know, like uh, I mean, obviously, I was born. I was born 31 years after the end of World War Two. But the experience of that war, my grandparents were all fought through it. Which mm-hmm. is a shame for your yeah. grandparents. You know, it, it, it still marked us, even as the grandchildren yeah. of this of this cataclysm, this calamity. Yeah. My interestingly, my my wife's grandmother, she talks about it like it was a, a wonderful time. Like she was in the Blitz, in the you know, and mm. she goes, "Oh, there's a great sense of community and uh-huh, yeah. and all that business." And you just think, how can that even <laughs> be? <laughs> I wonder if that's not also partly that. A stiff upper lip kind of thing, you mean? That, that true, and I'm sure mm. there was a sense of common purpose, which is, you know, part of it, I suspect, is just that they were young. At the time. Mm. You know, yeah. Not that I can remotely compare it to the Blitz, but I've pretty much forgotten the, my first depression and all the things I found difficult at university, and I just remember it as a moment of great excitement. So yeah. that's partly it, just because I was, you know, 20 and had lots of energy. And, mm-hmm. um, partly, I think it is because. We've la- we, we lack a sense of, of a collective narrative now, mm-hmm. and I think the rise of of populist demagogues across the West in the last few years is precisely because yeah. um, most people feel that they don't have a sense of belonging. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, it, it could you could say it goes back to Thatcher, really, but I mean everything does. All, yeah, it all does. the bad stuff seems to anyway. <laughs> um, but it, just that you know the, the the idea that community doesn't matter; it's all about the individual. Is, yeah. is that is that kind of is that too broad of way of putting it no it's, it's I mean it rings true for me uh, uh, um, I mean I, well, this is a, aside from the writing I suppose again that's fine my we'll come back to it l- well look, I'll bring it back around don't worry Greg. as it seems to me an awful lot of the world now equates social liberalism with economic liberalism mm-hmm. and economic liberalism to a large degree un- dissolves the bonds of, of a community right uh because there's a sense that everything is precarious, uh, capital will simply go wherever it's least imposed upon. Mm-hmm. You see it right now in, in, in France with Marine Le Pen uh, getting lots of applause and attention at the Whirlpool factory in Amiens. Mm-hmm. She goes there and promises an impossible solution to the yep. problem. Macron goes there says the problem is insoluble, but I'm on your side. Yep. It's not surprising that an awful lot of working class French people should identify with Le Pen. Mm-hmm. Uh, because she seems to be giving an answer. Now, the answer isn't really workable. But yeah. Yeah, yes, it's true that. Uh, I mean, Thatcher was just sort of uh, uh, ahead of the wave, as it were. But the mm-hmm. wave has blown over, it's washed over all, all of the West. Yeah. And, and, and although I do consider myself to be a liberal, very much so, a centrist, I have to recognise that the centre hasn't got answers to this, these problems of no. belonging and, and meaning. Mm-hmm. But meaning is the big, is the big one, I think. Yeah. So, you know, for instance, in this country, people of broadly centrist or pro- pro- progressive tendencies are uncomfortable with the idea of patriotism. Mm-hmm. What that means is, of course, you cede the very notion of patriotism to the right, who then muddy the waters between patriotism, which is broadly positive, nationalism. and nationalism, mm-hmm. which is not, uh, so that we don't even know how to distinguish these things. Mm-hmm. So I looked at countries that, that, that try to have a kind of liberal, progressive national uh, patriotism. <laughs> oh, I got caught there. Yeah. And um, I think, well, you know, it's, it's easy for privileged people like me 
who can move to some degree uh, quite easily between the different countries of Europe who feels relatively at ease uh, because of my privileges and my education. Mm -hmm. It's easy for me to, 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 people like me, to dismiss that longing for, uh, for a communitarian meaning. Mm -hmm. um, but, but, but people do need that. And I suppose, because ultimately, I mean, you and I both deal in stories, mm -hmm. um, perhaps that that means that we're more at home in a diversity of narratives than Maybe. people are, who perhaps don't or only have one story that, that, yeah. that defines them. I definitely fall into that group of uh, despising patriotism. Um, I just, I don't know. It's, how does a liberal, how can a, lib how can a liberal be a patriot when, especially in these times, like how can you find anything good about either the UK or even my home country where, you know, Justin Trudeau, who mm. everyone thinks is amazing, but yeah. is seriously flawed. Same but, about the Tarsans. Yeah, oh, exactly. That's that's my home province. Well, but maybe, maybe maybe this is the challenge then, is, is, is precisely to come up with, with a form of a form of narrative which loves the home mm -hmm. without hating other other people's homes mm -hmm. and which recognises that what, what, what makes a nation, for me, what makes a nation is, is language, it's culture, it's people and, and the natural world. So, you know, it seems to me that a, a, a patriot Albertan <laughs> ought to love uh, the natural world of which you are greatly blessed much more than, yeah. than those tailing ponds. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and so a patriot is someone who, who, who wishes well for his country. And your country isn't just yourself. It's, the, it's all the beings that happen to live in that bit of territory. Mm -hmm. And it's the generations yet unborn there. Right. So if you're so destroying it's, your birthright, yeah. if you're destroying their birthright, you're not a patriot because yeah. you're destroying their home. So for me, patriotism is means telling other people how great your country is rather than yeah. ca caring for your own country kind of feels like a different thing outside of patriot. And I think maybe that's just because I'm a, a liberal thinking person. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. I, it's, I really struggle with it. Yeah, yeah no, absolutely. <laughs> and every, time, like, every time I see someone with a flag on their backpack, Canadian yeah. flag on their backpack, I just want to kick them over. Um, and I think it must be the same if you see, you know, on mm. whenever, like the Queen's Jubilee, all the flag-waving mm. nonsense. But does it mean that, that. Our, so, so our tribe is the tribe that doesn't have a flag? And the, Good their tribe is the tribe that does have a flag. So yeah. maybe we, we need to acknowledge the tribalism mm. in ourselves. I, guess I have to say, every time I see a flag being burned, I get a lot more excited than I do <laughs> someone waving one. Well, I can't possibly endorse us. <laughs> 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 Um, should we talk about your book some more? Yeah, let's talk about okay. the book a bit more. I wanna, like, I, we've, I've already kind of touched on it, but uh, I think my favorite story was uh, the Time Traveler's Breakdown, obviously. Oh, well, wonderful. I'm glad you like that one. Um, I, I, I mean, it I immediately appeals to me because mm. that, that sort of business, uh, uh, that's, I, I mean, I'm writing about that sort of thing as mm. well. Um, but I, I really liked the fact that, and maybe, I, hopefully, that I've got this right, but it feels like, it, because there's no reference point from where the the time travel leaves from, mm. unless there is, unless I, and I missed it. I, I have a feeling I'm in. I mean, stepping in it here. Mm -hmm. Okay, but it, it moves ninety years, mm. uh, but it's, you don't know if it's forward or backwards, and you don't know where they've come from. Is that have I got that right, or have I got it wrong? Uh, well, if you if you've got I know it that's wrong, not, I, I know that's not the point of the story. No, he's he's gone back in time from the present. Is the way oh, I see, see it. But it's not. But it's not. It's not at all. I don't want to make it explicit. Okay. All, all that I wanted to be about. <laughs> oh, now it's done. That's okay. No one listens to this anyway. <laughs> no, that's all right. Um, 
I was primarily again. So we were talking earlier about taking a fantastic premise mm-hmm. and, and then t- just taking it, you know, uh, a step further or taking it literally. I mean, there are several stories. You know, the ghost who bled seems to be a ghost story. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the confession of Sarah Tubble is a doppelganger story. Mm-hmm. Um, the Hermit of Athos is a sort of. Uh, Supernatural story too. Yep. Time Travelers Breakdown is a science, a science fiction premise, mm-hmm. speculative fiction. And I thought, well, what happens if a character goes back in time? You know, and I was thinking, of course, the, the earliest, the granddaddy of all the time travel stories, H.G. Uh, Wells' novel, mm-hmm. Time Machine, where he doesn't move in space, he just moves in time. But yep. places change if you right. move far enough in time, mm-hmm. uh, literally, because plate tectonics and goodness knows what else. Mm-hmm. But I thought, well, rather than rather than sort of imagining uh, crabs at the end of time. <laughs> uh, or the Eloy and the Morlock. I thought, well, what happens if he simply goes back in time to his before his own existence, mm-hmm. and then is obliged effectively to exist, not a posthumous existence, but whatever whatever the pre equivalent of a, a priestumous? No, Whoa. I haven't even got a word for that one. That's but, great. I like that word actually. What it would be to be again, so this this, this sense of, of being maroon, but also having to see again the gradual evolution of the place that you knew. Right. See, I couldn't tell. The reason I was confused, I think, is because mm. I couldn't tell if, if he'd gone forward and that place had been destroyed and it was being. Because yeah. you talk about, I think there's a tower or something that's come down. That he, he talks about a tower with something on top of it, yeah. and that's no longer there. I yeah. wasn't oh, sure. No, I'm so pleased about that because that's exactly what I'm talking about. Okay. If you go back far enough in time, that which is familiar is lost. Right. In a sense, it is destroyed. It hasn't actually been. been it yet. hasn't existed yet. So okay. it's going gonna, it's gonna to be going to be created. So my, my novel is set in exactly the same landscape. It's this landscape in North Surrey. Uh, Bagshot Heath, where mm-hmm. I grew up, um, and, and in both of these, so a speculative fiction novel and my novel, which takes place partly in Roman times, partly now, and partly in the future. Mm-hmm. Again, I would wow. seem to be moving a lot in time and space, mm-hmm. and writing beyond my experience. But ultimately, I'm writing about my home landscape. Yep. So it's deeply personal. Do you think it's escapist escapism because you're not really happy with? This is—I know this is a broad thing, mm. but because you're talking about moving through time and stuff, and, mm. and I, I know—I think largely that's why it appeals to me. Mm. But do you find that because you know the world that we live in right now is a bit shit? Let's be honest. That you know, it'd be nice to be somewhere else. Yeah, uh, I think about this a lot, actually, Rob, because it's a common accusation leveled at the English novel, and I suppose by association, English short stories, mm-hmm. that uh, it's happiest in the past. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this isn't as simple as uh, dwelling on past glories or the sense that you know back in well, World War Two, for instance, we had a clear sense of purpose, whereas now we're divided and it's inchoate. Um, and uh, I'm trying—I've always been trying to work out why it is that we write a great deal about the past. And I think it's um, my, 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 not my answer, but my, my, my attempt at an explanation to myself is that um, writing about the present—it's—it's—it's it's, uh, it's in constant flux. Uh, and so it's very, very difficult to do it without it being dated. Without it being dated, almost mm-hmm. immediately. You know, so if you absolutely write a topical novel yep. that's topical two years ago, it's sort of, yeah, yeah. Uh, paraphrasing what you just said. I know what you mean. Yeah, of course you do. Uh, and uh, so, you know, if writing about uh, the War of the Roses uh, enabled Shakespeare to write partly about England now and the preoccupations and worries that England in Elizabethan times had about dangers within and the enemy mm-hmm. within and of course, you know, this fear of war coming back, you know. Shakespeare's writing about his England, but he's writing, you know, set 200 years earlier, or he's writing about England, but he, and, and, and the problem of vice in the cities, but he sets it in, in, a, in, a, in a notional Austria, in mm-hmm. measure for measure. You know, mm. it, 
what Shakespeare did out of uh, political necessity because he needed to get uh, avoid getting into Being serious killed. trouble. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but but it, it also ena- enabled him to to get at things again, as I say, slant. And so I suppose, as we've established, I am writing about very twenty first century preoccupations. Uh, although, of course, the en- ending's death. You know, I mean, it's Frank Commode established for 40 years ago. Mm-hmm. This is central to, to literature, which needs an ending, mm-hmm. as we all need endings uh, in our minds. <laughs> whether we least, want it or whether not. Whether we want it or not. Yeah, but we do, absolutely. We need, we need some kind of confinement, because nothing's more frightening than, 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 than eternity. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, I, would, I would say the opposite of that. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. See, I would, if, if someone said to me, Could, do you want to live forever? I'd be like, yes. Really? Yeah. Even though you think now is a bit yeah. shit? If, if there, it, I would say yes uh, with other conditions. And that, oh, this is the thing I think about a lot. Like, if you were sort of like an, an immortal, basically, and you could yeah. travel through time and space or something like to that point, then yes, definitely. Why wouldn't you want to live forever? Sorry, I've completely railroaded your no, no, you haven't. Stream uh, of uh, 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 well, I mean, this is this is the whole appeal of Doctor Who, isn't it? Yes. Well, see, and uh, ironically, I hate Doctor Who. You hate Doctor Who. We've established this before. Yeah. And I've, I've expressed. I absolutely can't, and I've tried many times to watch it. But I think I think it's just one of those things that you have to be British to like it, and I don't know uh, why. I can't quantify that in any way. But I watch that and I just think it's ridiculous. It but, is ridiculous. But not. But it, I think the problem is it, it has absolutely. I think it tries to have some sort of basis, uh, some anchor in reality. Uh, but I just don't never buy that. But you 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 are kind of you're a sort of pure pure science fiction. You're sort of hard SF. No, man, no, definitely not. No, 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 no not, not hard SF at all. Um, but if it goes too far, I'm not a massive yeah. fan of that either. No. Like I if mean, it's, it's just like it's oh, you know, space the world. fantasy. Yeah, so it's like space he, fantasy. Like he has, a, he basically he has a wand, right? Yeah, and he exactly. waves at yeah, things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Reverses the polarity, my ass. Yeah. <laughs> um, but the way I, the way I've, I mean, it's, you're absolutely right. I grew up watching it as a child, mm-hmm. hiding behind the sofa. Mm-hmm. Uh, for me, it was Peter Davidson. I was, I was, I'm, I'm, I'm too young to have had Tom Baker. I apologise to the purists. <laughs> uh, was but, he the first one, the guy with the scarf? Oh no, no, no. He, well, he wasn't the first. He was, I think, he was the fourth. Okay, but sorry. But for a lot on. of people, he was uh, the one. Well, yes, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> um, he, he was, a, he was a great doctor. But um, anyway, so I, I grew up with him. But I, but I, to be really positive, what I love about Doctor Who, there are two things I love about Doctor Who. First of all, you've got to understand it as a, as a modern myth. It's, 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 he's mythic. He's a trickster, isn't he? Mm-hmm. It's the tradition of the trickster. Of course, the, Ameri- the Americas have provided us great examples of. <laughs> uh, and um, also his non-violence. I mean, every so often he has to blow things up. Or yep. th- he, he, he causes things to blow themselves up right. by reversing their polarity. Yes. Uh, but, but generally speaking, you know, his aversion to a gun, his determination that it is possible to find peaceful solutions. Mm. What I love about the original Star Trek, the new films yep. are bollocks, partly because mm-hmm. because they reverted to the kind of gung-ho, yeah. ultimate death-worshipping culture. The kind of war culture. movies, aren't yeah, they? The yeah, the war movies. And that's, so, that's what was so depressing about, uh, about that development, is precisely that the original Star Trek, like the original Doctor Who, both coming out of the 60s, incidentally, mm-hmm. of course, not surprising there, the progressive, hopeful 60s, mm-hmm. uh, is, is, is the possibility of telling stories that don't revol- re- resolve themselves with a the gun. Mm. You know, I can't, you can't go out of your house without yeah. seeing a bus driving by someone just now, yeah. and there'll be a, a poster for a movie, and it'll be a guy with a gun. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and I, I'm, I, if I were writing, which I would love to do, incidentally, um, if I were writing that, this, kind of, this kind of stuff, yeah, uh, that's that would be a huge part of the pill for me. Mm. Can we I think, find a solution that doesn't involve blowing things yeah. up and killing people? Maybe I'm too cynical to see that that far, to to buy any kind of utopia. Mm. Um, I think that's what it is. Any mm. kind of thing that has anything based in like uh, utopian thought, yeah. especially the Star Trek yeah. series, where you know 
it's just a perfect world, really. Like, sure, you got a couple of bad guys here and there, but you know, there's no money, and yeah. uh, you know, everyone's living this great life. You just, I, I want to go to Saturn tomorrow, where, yeah. whatever. You know, it's it's brilliant. Yeah. But it's I just like, like being a, Californ- a rich Californian in the '60s, but just on a great scale. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Well, yeah, I, I'll sign up for that. Yeah, definitely. But on the other hand, uh, yeah, of course it's utopian. But mm. uh, uh, and, and I never thought of this before, but I, I remember someone saying, I can't remember who it was though, so I can't remember it that well. But I, I've, I've always absorbed this idea that uh, one of the ways of reading uh, Agatha Christie's uh, novels, most of them, there are a few of them that are kind of a bit dark and troubling, but most of them are set in comfortable 1920s, 1930s village life. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a hierarchy, everyone knows that. I think that's place. why you can buy it. Why it's more? Why you can buy something like that? Are you? Are you? Sorry, go on. No, no. What was I going to say? That is that one of the ways of interpreting that is that it's comedy. In the Shakespeare sense, comedy. Right. It's a stable, sensible, rational world. Some instability threatens it. A murder. Mm-hmm. Um, nearly always. I mean, to the point where you've nearly always got um, star-crossed lovers mm-hmm. who are being prevented by Colonel Bumfluff from marrying. Colonel Bumfluff <laughs> gets killed so they can marry at the end of yeah. it all. So basically, the, the, the reason why, and, and there's a reason why. You know, you go to the big shops, shop, big bookshops. Mm-hmm. They have cozy crime sections. Mm-hmm. Well, I think Star Trek, the original, is kind of cozy science fiction. Yeah, it is definitely. I think it's perfect. It's a, yeah. a sensible world. It's threatened briefly by an external force. Mm-hmm. That's dealt with back yeah. to order. Yeah, yeah. That's an immensely pleased, and ultimately, there's something of that in Doctor Who, except that, and why, and the reasons why I try to persuade you Doctor Who is worth sticking with, mm-hmm. is that Doctor Who is also preoccupied with the innate sadness of mutability. Yeah, he's able to re re-engineer himself mm-hmm. every so often, but he's carrying this great big hall of ghosts, all his all his previous uh, mm-hmm. uh, companions. Oh, companions. Oh, and yeah, and iterations yeah. as well. Mm. Exactly. You know. So, do- Doctor Who, they've for me, they've. They, they've touched as, as they've evolved the formula over the decades they've touched on something that does resonate quite deeply mm. but it is also deeply silly yeah so and, and every third episode is pitched to seven year olds mm-hmm. and every other episode is, is probably scary so you, you yeah. never know quite whether you're going to get the one that's made for you or made for your nephew yeah so the that, Christmas one the you're one. probably going to get the one for you oh no right. nephew oh is that the nephew one? Oh, the Christmas ones are dismal oh are they sometimes I try to convert my, 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 my wife into Doctor <laughs> Who I've always foolishly sat down and watched the one for my seven-year-old. Mm. Um, I, I need to get to the more the darker and complex ones. Yeah, I don't know. I think you have to grow up with Daleks to be afraid of them. I was very frightened of Daleks. Yeah, I, I hadn't thought about the stair conundrum, yeah. which they've resolved just by having them fly. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right. I think maybe we've talked about Doctor Who enough now. <laughs> you might have to cut some of that out. Um, oh, I don't think it will. I think it's staying in. Um, when I, I do want to finish by just talking about your novel that's just been picked up. Is it by Fourth Estate? Yes, Fourth Estate. And I know you've, you've, you've mentioned it briefly mm. before. Mm-hmm. Do you want to talk a, yeah. a bit more? Uh, I have to get into you, say, you said Roman times? and Yeah, so it's called The Devil's Highway. Yeah. Uh, and it's out, uh, I think, in February or March next year from Fourth Estate. Uh, and it's taken me absolutely years to write a lot of full starts. It's actually going to be a very slender novel, about 220 pages, which looks like slim pickings for all the years I've ag- agonised over it. Mm-hmm. But basically, the Devil's Highway is the name of a Roman road that travels from what would have been Londinium uh, out to the West Country. Okay. Uh, the Devil's Highway is the folk name for it, because like a lot of these uh, things, when you know, notionally the Anglo-Saxons arrived, they found these incredible roads, they couldn't build straight roads like that, so the assumption mm-hmm. was only the devil could build this, like devil bridges and so on. Of course, it was a Roman construction, yep. very, very straight, and it still exists through this area of, of heathland and pine plantations above my parents' house. And this area of heathland and pine plantations is surrounded by uh, exurbia, We've got lots and lots of, uh, sort of sleeper dormer towns. Okay. Um, 
I think I need to sleep at Dormantown. Dormantown's where people sleep uh, and, you know, don't really exist. It's, it's a world that, um, I don't know if you've read Beyond Black by nope. Hilary Mantel. She captures it brilliantly. Mm. This sort of world in what would what will be in 2400 20, uh, Zone 12 of London, okay. you know, on the periphery of London. Oh, I like the but still a hint of wildness mm-hmm. to it. Uh, and so, it's about, again, it's about this landscape, which uh, is a very ancient landscape. The heathlands were formed in Neolithic times, uh, poor sandy soils when all the forests were slashed and burned. Um, the trees were unable to come back because of continuing agriculture, continuing burning. So we, ha- we have what George Monbiot considers to be you know, a degraded biome, which is the heathland. It mm-hmm. may be degraded, but it's also very culturally specific. There are certain wildlife that lives there. Uh, I'm very interested in birds, so there's a, the night jar, which makes this incredible churring mm-hmm. sound, and in the summer, and woodlarks, and so you know it has its own particular flavour. And because everything is low and uh, you know shrubby, and uh, the description of Egdon Heath at the beginning of uh, the Return of the Native mm-hmm. s- s- does capture something about the experience of being on the heath. But of course, this is England, so and this is southeast England, so it's mm-hmm. in tiny little patches, yeah. surrounded by roads and housing estates, and it's constantly being attacked by arsonists, and it's constantly mm. being ridden over by motorbikes and dumped. So it's 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 an ill-loved and ill-used landscape. And at the same time, you've got this Roman road, and right above the Roman road, just above my parents' house, about uh, 40 minutes walk at a good pace from my parents' house, uh, there's an Iron Age hill fort. Mm-hmm. And so we were talking earlier about how one place is many places over time. Yep. And I was thinking, well, why not try and bring this, again, my preoccupations with this landscape, which I used to be mm-hmm. as a conservationist, local conservationist volunteer, involved in trying not just to kind of excavate and preserve, and preserve, of course, partly from the business of natural succession back to woodland, which it sure. should be doing. So there's a paradox there. Mm. Anyway, there's all those are preoccupations. And so the first part of the book, and it, it goes from one to the other. Originally, it was in three sections, the novellas. Uh, mm-hmm. But then my editor, Helen Garnons Williams, said, let's be a bit brave with it. Let's splice it throughout. Okay. And I think she was absolutely right to do that. Wow, that's, it, that's tricky. It, it was very tricky. Uh, it's been a very, very finicky job, um, but it's been very well supervised by very able people, which mm. has been helpful. Great. Um, so you've got one section which is set in the hill, on the hill fort yep. when it's still occupied, just about occupied, yep. in about uh, 60 AD, um, just as the Roman road is being built. Yep. Um, and it's the story of a, of a boy in Duggan, a local British boy, whose brother has been uh, won over by an escaped druid man of art. I don't call them druid because it's not entirely strictly accurate. Okay. Historically, this man of art is sort of hiding in the woods, and he's managed to get these young men to carry out a, a, a stupid act of murderous bravado against the Romans, okay. which of course will bring terrible vengeance on the, the local tribe. Mm-hmm. So the boy is torn between loyalty to his brother and loyalty to his tribe. What's he going to do? Um, so there, there you've got this boy and then you've got a Roman soldier called Marcus so you write from both those perspectives and the, the middle section No Man's Land takes place in 2011 there was a, just as now there was a spring drought by English standards mm-hmm. uh, and of course in the spring in the heathland you've got lots of winter dieback it's the same reasons you had terrible fires in Fort is it Fort Murray? yep um, this guy's good yeah uh, because in winter everything is dry and dead and of course they had no time to new green shoots so then there's, yeah. there's, you, you, you've, you've got a, what originally was going to be the main character is, a, is an archaeologist, a man who has that historical perspective that no one else has. Mm-hmm. And he's trying to preserve the heath. But then I realised I had to write it from the point of view of his daughter. There's a, there's a traumatised Afghan vet, Afghanistan vet. Jesus. Also there. So okay. that's the meeting about the daughter and the right. vet and okay. the fighting over the heath. And then the last section takes place centuries in the future. Mm. And it's about a group of feral children trying to get to the West Country where there's still rain. 
Right. So it's about a whole number of preoccupations, ecological, mm-hmm. um, but also what, how does society cope yep. with its young people, with the aggression of young men. Uh, and and um, I suppose the idea for it is that, you know, there are three agons, three, three, three periods of struggling with the demon. Sure. But the demon is our own demon. Um, so there we go. It's it, Wow. Yeah. Ambitious. It's, it's, it's ambitious, pages, short. That, yeah. I'm, <laughs> that, that sounds really good. Um, that's all I need. So Fantastic. thank you very much. Thank you very much, Ron. I look forward to, to hearing our ramblings. Yes, me too. <laughs> <laughs> He's good, right? Uh, I've got loads of good guests lined up, more than what I know what to do with. I've got Sarah Butler, Helen McClory, the podcast's favorite person, Jen Ashworth. I think that's probably true. I can't say that. I can't say which ones are my favorite. They're all my favorite, obviously. Uh, and her writing partner, Richard Hurst, they talk about their short story collection coming up. Plus, I'm in Edinburgh at the same time as Will Self. So, hey, wouldn't that be cool, getting him on after all the dissing I've done of him? Done of him? The dissing I've done, I did of him. That's not right. Anyway, he's, there's no way he's coming on. I don't even know why I mentioned his name. I think I'm supposed to interview Christy Logan at some point. I just remembered. But I, I don't remember seeing her on the bill. Uh, okay. I need to solidify that. Uh, Adele Stripe. Another Northern debut novelist will be on talking about her novel about Andrea Dunbar. So it'll get a bit Jeffrey Boycott on here. He's the only guy from Yorkshire I know, other than Ben Myers and Adele Stripe. Anyway, it's going to get a bit Yorkshire on this mofo. So, you know, appalls. I live in Lancashire, so I'm supposed to hate Yorkshire people because of some war that hurt, that occurred in prehistory. Maybe you've heard of it, the War of the Roses. Yeah, so that's why we still don't like Yorkshire people. And it's also why, you know, in football, my team and the town that's the closest to me, we hate each other too because, you know, history. And it's really important that we don't get along for some reason. England is a weird place, man. So yeah, you've got some podcasts to listen to coming up over the summer. And uh, that's it. Bye.